good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter one is where we're gonna be. We're going to make our way through Romans uh, chapter one, verse 16. But just as a way of introduction and perhaps even a way of reminder, we're dealing with a passage this morning that is largely the thesis statement of the book of Romans. When we come to this particular text, Paul is essentially launching out of his own comments as he's thinking about the people at Rome, as he's considered and meditated upon the gospel of God in the introduction. And then you see this outpouring of affection for the saints who are at Rome, that in Rome, that language of, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift. I'm obligated to you there. I'm eager. And this morning, really what I'd like to do is get a little bit behind his eagerness. Why is he so eager to preach the gospel? And perhaps a better question is, why are we not always so eager to preach the gospel? Why is it that often our tongues are still, that they aren't as excited and thrilled to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others? And this morning, what I'd like to do is perhaps give a brief examination of reasons that we are often, much to our dismay, ashamed of the gospel. And then hopefully as we walk through this passage, we'll see that all of those reasons that we might have to be ashamed of the gospel of God would actually be reasons that we would boast and be all the more eager to proclaim it. But what is the gospel of God? You know, as we approach this, it is important. He says in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, what is that gospel? Just as way of reminder, Romans chapter one, he lays this out for us, this gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus Christ. The gospel is Jesus Christ descending, dwelling with us, living a perfectly righteous life, but being made like us in every way, yet without sin, fulfilling every command given in the Old Testament, fulfilling every prophecy made of him. And then as he goes to the cross, he lays down his life. He does not, he is not taken from him. He lays it down for the purpose of redeeming his church. And then as he lays it down, he atones for those sins of his people. And then he dies and he raises from the dead, conquering, trampling over death. Now it is interesting because we think about that. And I would imagine that every soul as we come in and we have sung of the great beauties of the gospel, even as we sing, come behold the wondrous mystery and a mystery it is, but it is also a revealed mystery that the gospel of God is something that is mighty. It is powerful. It is lovely. It is beautiful. So why is it that that gospel thrills our soul today, but it is often something that we are slow to speak of on Monday? And what I'd like to do is perhaps present a reality that is overlooked because we'd never want to assume it of ourselves and we never want to assume it of our brothers or sisters. But perhaps it is that one of the great barriers to the proclamation of the gospel is that we have something in us that is ashamed. Perhaps it is that there is something in the gospel that even though we have been born again and even though we see it as lovely and beautiful, we still have these moments of maybe shame, repulsion, 
And I'm convinced that's why Paul writes this letter, writes as he introduces this blessed book of Romans, as he launches into the arguments that he wants to make, as he reminds them that perhaps it is that there be shame in you. And his desire as he writes this entire letter is to put every single ounce of shame to death, to watch it perish under the weight, under the beauty of the gospel, that after he is done writing, that there would be no room for shame any longer. And so with that, would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter one, we'll start in verse 15 and make our way through verse 17. I would remind you brothers and sisters that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Indeed it is the, uh, the word of God. So Romans chapter one, starting in verse 15, it says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your revealed word. We thank you that in it, you make known to us the power of the gospel, that in it, you make known to us the exclusivity of the gospel. But Lord, we thank you more than anything that it reveals to us the substance of the gospel, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Father, we ask you now, even as we come to examine these things, that you would make much of him, that you would help us to see him as all beautiful and that all other beauties, all other things that this world has in store would be counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Lord, may it be that there be no shame in us, but great boasting, great delight and great rejoicing in the gospel of God. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray, amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning is this. We are to, this is a command, we are to boast, delight, and rejoice in the gospel. We are to boast, delight, and rejoice in the gospel. Which by the way, is essentially what Paul is saying as he writes Romans 1.16. But he writes it in a very unique way and he writes it in a unique way for a really particular purpose. As he writes Romans 1.16, if you were to take just, if you were to remove the negative, essentially what he's saying is I am proud of the gospel. It is something that I rejoice in. It is something that I am thrilled by. It's the reason that I'm eager to proclaim it is because there is no shame in me about the gospel of God. And so it does lead us to ask a question, why is it that Paul did and simply say, I boast, delight, and rejoice in the gospel. Why is it that he instead uses a negative? Why is it that instead of making the positive statement, he uses this negative phrase? And I wanna perhaps make known, I, I'm convinced his primary reasoning. It is because in this negative statement, he has the ability to essentially make two very clear statements. First, he says that though there be reason for shame, according to the world, I have no shame in regard to the gospel of God. But secondly, it is essentially, I will give you reason to boast. And I think this is the essence of the book of Romans because all throughout this blessed letter, there are questions and answers. And Paul always presupposes the questions that are going to be asked as he writes. That's the reason the vast majority of chapter divisions start with a question. What shall we say then? Shall we go on seeing that grace may increase? By no means. As he makes his way through this letter, he starts with questions and answers them. In the exact same way, as he writes in Romans 1.16, as he lays this out for us, he is essentially saying, there is no reason for shame and I have none, you should have none, but there is great reason to boast. There is great reason to boast in the gospel of God. But shame is the enemy of that boasting. 
It is almost as though he lays out the culprit. The reason that we do not boast in the gospel, the reason that we are slow to speak it is because there is something in us that has some shame concerning it. And immediately in this verse, he begins to disarm all of these types of shame. But I do want to perhaps give a couple of things that I'm convinced often lead to shame according to the gospel. Now, what's most interesting about each of these things is that normally they are reasons to boast. If you look at them appropriately, if you look at them through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of the spirit of God, then you will see that each and every one of these reasons are not a reason to be ashamed, but instead they are all the more reason to boast in glory in the gospel of God. And so if I could, I just wanna present a couple to you and we'll go through and answer each of these questions. So we can be ashamed of the folly of the message. Have you ever stopped to consider how foolish the message of the gospel actually is? I mean, let's just play this out. What we have is one who is born from a virgin. Not only is he born of a virgin, but he is born of a virgin placed in a feeding trough on the day of Christmas, which we, at the time we celebrated anyway. And he lays there. Wise men come because they follow a star. And as they follow a star, they reach the destination. They rejoice that there is this promised one. This young man grows up and throughout the entirety of his life, he commits no sin, trespass or iniquity. That in and of itself is the most far-fetched claim that I can possibly imagine. That there would be one who was made like us in every way yet without sin. He has never sinned, he has never trespassed. He has never been disobedient to parents. He has never lied. He has never committed any indecent act. He is holy. And this holy one is so holy that his presence is wildly offensive to the entirety of the population of our world to such a degree that as he goes about performing miracles, such as feeding the hungry, healing the sick, giving eyes to the blind, they crucify him. And as they crucify him, he hangs there, not cursing those around him, but instead praying for their repentance. That this message is the good news of the gospel that our King, our Savior came and He died. Not only did He die, but for the first time in history, He is raised from the dead, not according to an external power, but according to His own power. Brothers and sisters, this is a foolish message. This is a foolish message. No mind would ever fabricate such a message. There is a reason that there is no religion that has any real common factor, common denominator with the Christian faith because this message is folly. And perhaps it isn't that the message is just so foolish. Perhaps it is that there is a shame at the perceived weakness of the Savior. I mean, even going back, I mean, this one who has come, this one who we sit each Lord's day and sing praises to, that we say that he is omnipotent, that he is all powerful, all knowing, all wise, that this is the one that we come to sing of. But if you look at him and should you take him to the nations where there's no eyes to see by the spirit, if they were to hear this message, they would say, your king is weak. He came as a conqueror, but it seems as though he conquered very little. That this is a weak king. And I can understand the perceived weakness of Christ but it is only that, it is a perceived one. But perhaps it's not only the message and the savior that we might find ourselves ashamed at, perhaps it is that we are ashamed at the removal of moral boasting. 
We are ashamed at the removal of moral boasting. Have you ever noticed there's no room inside of Christianity to boast in some moral ability in man to make ourselves approved or make ourselves beautiful to the God of glory? There is no moral boasting here. And brothers and sisters, as we go forth preaching the gospel, our first proclamation is there is no room for boasting in me. There is no room for boasting in you. And this is offensive. Not only is it offensive, I find that many would shrink back from such a reality that there is nothing that I have to boast in. There's no room for for moral pride or self-exaltation. Perhaps it is that we shrink back from that because every other culture, every other religion says, no, there must be room for moral boasting. There must be something in man that makes him lovely. And it is normally that great moral, moral power. Or perhaps it is that we find ourselves ashamed of the inclusivity or the exclusivity of the gospel. And I think this is perhaps more prevalent than we believe It is inclusive in the sense that we will often look at people and we will think that they are not fit for the kingdom of God. You think back to the days of the Pharisees and they would certainly look at the Gentiles and say, oh, no, 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 not these. Not these, they're not fit for the kingdom. They're not fit to enter in. Even a physical example of this, very clearly laid out in the court of the Gentiles, they must be far off. They are not to be included. And brothers and sisters, what is most interesting is as we go forth preaching the gospel, it is assumed that they are indeed included. Or perhaps it's it's exclusiveness, And I hear this so frequently. Ah, but he is a good man. No, he's not. There are much room for shame. And as we look at those who perhaps are some morally upright and some worldly standard, we think them good. And perhaps it is that the entirety of the world would stamp on their soul, good man. It matters not in the court of Christ. If he is not holy and without blemish, if he is not perfectly righteous, then he is condemned. This is the absolute of the gospel, that there is an exclusive way It is indeed an inclusive and yes, an exclusive gospel. And I'm convinced from time to time, we shrink back at these things. And what we see throughout the entirety of the book of Romans, and really in a really concentrated way in Romans 1.16 is a disarming of every single one of these uh, qualifications or, or reasons to be ashamed and really turns them into a reason to boast. And I mean that. We talk about boasting, we almost always use it in the negative sense, but brothers and sisters, we are to be people who boast in the gospel of Jesus Christ, boast in a way that is perhaps even obnoxious from time to time, that it is our great delight and eagerness to proclaim this message because we ourselves are boasting in it. And boasting is normally loud. And so these are all the reasons for shame. And what I'd like to do, because I'm convinced that this is the purpose of Paul, is to essentially take each and every one of these things and disarm them according to the scriptures. And what is most interesting about each of them is the scriptures almost universally agree with every single assumption that we are ashamed at. Except we're missing a few vital pieces. And so perhaps it is that you say, the message is folly and the savior is weak. We agree. The message is folly. The Savior is perceiving, perceivedly weak. And more than that, perhaps really it matters not what we think. Let's see what the word of God has to say. Because the scriptures shout these realities. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18 through 15 essentially tells us that the message of the cross is folly. It is foolishness. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18 through 15 says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debtor of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what is the folly of the message of the gospel? Should we call it folly? Should we call it foolishness? Yes and amen, we should. So perhaps it is that you have in you that inkling to say, oh, the message is folly. The scripture agrees, but make that reality bow to what is true, bow to what is revealed in scripture. And what is it that takes this, this preaching that is foolishness to this, to this preaching that becomes the power of God for salvation? How is it that in verse 18, it says, for the, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. How do we go from the word of the cross is folly to it is the power of God for salvation? It is the spirit's ability to reveal so that we can see and behold the cross rightly. And now what's so interesting about this is, and I'm convinced that every major, every major birthplace of shame when we shrink back from the proclamation of the gospel is because it debases human pride. I want you to consider this. The people who read this, people from Corinth, they would have been these Greeks that were wise. They thought themselves to be brilliant men. And Paul essentially takes an ax to every ounce of pride they have and say, you think you're brilliant? Apart from the spirit of God, you would think this message is folly. You would think it foolish and there would be no power in it whatsoever. But that's not at all what we see. Instead, the spirit of God gives them eyes to see and to behold. And immediately what that spirit does as it reveals the foolishness of preaching, that is in essence, the power of God for salvation. It takes human intellect and human wisdom and it casts it low. Why is it that we can be ashamed that the gospel, that the message of the cross is folly because it debases human pride. There is no intellect so great. There is no wisdom so vast that they can look in, that they can say, ah, yes, this is the power of God. It takes the spirit of God to proclaim this. It matters not human intellect. Instead, the gospel casts the human intellect low. It casts our wisdom low. And I love the last verse that we see in this passage from 1 Corinthians for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so, yes, we would proclaim, yes, the message of the cross is folly, but it's the folly of God, which is infinitely higher than the wisdom of man. He is the eternally wise God. And so our human pride is debased and perhaps it is that you go on to say, well, yes, it seems as though the savior is weak, and here perhaps is that great mystery of the gospel because it is quite clear the scripture agrees. Luke chapter two, verses six through seven. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. In the end, see him there, an infant, dependent totally, on the care of his mother. This is, this is the king we preach. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, there was no earthly prestige about him. He could not even afford a room inside. And yet this is, this is the message. This is the savior we preach. We preach this weak one who didn't even have real clothes to be wrapped in. 
Or perhaps going a bit further, in John chapter four, verse six, it says, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he's tired from walking. This is your king. This is the one that you worship. This is the one that you go forth proclaiming, the one who's tired as he makes his way simply through a town on his way elsewhere, that he must sit next to this Samaritan woman, one who was not worthy of his attention at all. And not only that, but one who is so low as to speak with her. Not even speak with her, but ask her for some water. He didn't even have his own means of drawing it out. This is the savior that you preach. This is the one who is strong and mighty to save. Or perhaps let's go a bit further. You see him captured with ease. They come for him and he goes. He's beaten and flogged really without recompense whatsoever. He's nailed to a tree without a single ounce of fight in him. He hangs there grasping for breath. He cries out with a loud voice. You see him on that tree and he is dead. This is the savior we preach. He does seem weak, but the church shouts strong. The reality is that our savior was, he took on human flesh. Brothers and sisters, we should never be ashamed of his weakness. We should never be ashamed that he is, has been made like his brothers in every way. Every single moment when we see him wrapped in swaddling clothes, you see the great humility of our God and King. When we see him hang on the cross, you see his long suffering, being able to endure the wrath of men that he could easily thwart and immediately kill them all. Instead, we see his long suffering, he is patient. And as we see him there, hung on that tree, we see not one who has died at the hands of men, but we see one who has given up his life for those whom he loves. It is the strength of God that we see in the weakness of our savior. Because certainly we see him there and we shout strong. You see him dead for our justification. You see him live trampling over death. You see him weak for you and me, but regard him according to the flesh no longer. He is strong. Brothers and sisters, the greatest problem that we have with dealing with our moments of shame is that we fear admitting that there is some shame there. There is. It is scandalous. It most certainly is. But is it true that in almost every single one of these, there's great reason for rejoicing. There's great reason for boasting because brothers and sisters, what we have in our savior, the one who descended to dwell with us is one that was so greatly humble that he would humble himself even to death, even death on a cross. It is our reason for boasting that he would come for us, that our groom would perish, would die for us. Yes, we say he is weak, but see him strong. See him conquer death. See see him trample it underfoot. We have a mighty savior and it should be our reason for boast. And perhaps the reason that we would find ourselves so ashamed is that there was absolutely nothing that we could do to rescue ourselves. And then God sets forth the perfect, true God, true man. And all of our strength is debased because in his weakness, he has ransomed us. There's no room for human pride. There's no room for boasting in our intellect because it is only the spirit that makes it known to us. There's no reason for us to boast in our strength because brothers and sisters, our strength, even as this passage says, it says, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The mightiest of men could do nothing against the enemy of sin and death. He was helpless. And then this one who had no earthly prestige about him comes and he tramples it underfoot completely. Yes, he is, was weak, but he is strong. He is the mighty one who conquers all of his enemies. And so in conclusion, we should say this, in the glory of the gospel, 
We, I mean, I will glory in the gospel for in it, the power and wisdom of God is manifested. And it is manifested quite clearly in the redemptive purpose that God has set forth and in the person of Jesus Christ who has conquered all of his foes. But perhaps it is that your shame is not rooted in the folly of the message or in the weakness of the savior. Perhaps it is that it is in this removal of all moral boasting. Perhaps it is that you think yourself a rather upright individual and you think there has to be some room for moral boasting. There has to be something in me that drew God to me, that made him see me as lovely and thus he would die for me, that he would redeem me, that there is room for moral boasting. Perhaps it is that that is the reason that you are so ashamed. Brothers and sisters, I will say this with great confidence. The gospel does, in essence, remove all room for moral boasting. There is no one in this room that has the ability to morally boast before another. And I wanna point this out to you because in Titus chapter three, verses four through five, two of the sweetest verses in all of scripture, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Why, how? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Now there are two ways that he debases human pride here. First, he says that he has redeemed us, that he has done this great work, not based on our righteousness, not based upon anything that we had done, but then it goes on to perhaps cast us even lower. And it says, but according to his own mercy, you give mercy to those who are needy. Essentially, the argument is, do you have nothing to offer? As a matter of fact, you are indebted. You are so low that it doesn't matter what you offer. You need mercy. You need some extension of God's grace. And if not for that, then there would be no means of rescue, no means of salvation whatsoever. But what we see here is one who extends this loving kindness based upon his mercy. And perhaps one of the most important statements in all of scripture in regard to who you sit among each Lord's day is this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses nine through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Certainly a problem then. And then he goes on to say, do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that around you sits former thieves, drunkards, revilers, homosexuals, and swindlers? Not a single soul in this room has reason to morally boast. Not one. We all come based upon the mercy of God. There is no boasting. There is no reason. And there, this is, I can completely agree. This is the most offensive thing. We shrink back, especially as we speak to people who we believe to be upright and good. Brothers and sisters, if they are upright and good and they do that good to their own glory, they are evil idolaters. We are in need of the gospel of God. We go forth with no room for moral boasting. We look at every man and we say, you are in need of Jesus, regardless of how morally upright they seem. So why is this? Why is it necessary? Why is it that the scripture so clearly over and over again, essentially tars and feathers every human soul, makes clear that they are guilty before God and that they are in need of his mercy? Because in doing this, God removes all boasting by basing salvation on the grace of faith instead of works. Now we know this verse, I would imagine most of us have some version of it memorized, Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through nine. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And I want you to hear this phrase. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
None. None. There is no boasting. And even in this text we have in Romans 1.16, who is it that salvation comes to? It is not the morally upright. It is not the one that seems strong or wise. It is those who believe. That's who it comes to. It comes to those who believe exclusively. And that does lead us into our next point because perhaps it is that you say, oh, this, the gospel, it is, it's too exclusive. Or perhaps even it's not the exclusiveness that, that rubs you the wrong way. It's the inclusiveness because both are mentioned here. If you notice this language of it, this, this salvation, this power of God for salvation, it is to everyone who believes. I want you to hear the exclusiveness of that statement. There is no other means. That's it. He's given you an exhaustive list of the means by which you can experience the salvation of God through faith. And I wanna point out a couple of verses to you because the scripture agrees with you that perhaps you think, ah, oh, yes, it's so exclusive. And the scripture says, yes, it is indeed very exclusive. In John chapter three, verse 16, this verse that we delight in so much, this statement is so incredibly exclusive. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Hear this that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Who is it that gets eternal life? Those who believe, the believing ones, they are the ones who receive it and there is no other means of entry. And here we see that God has provided exclusively one way of redemption. And brothers and sisters, it's one more than we deserve. It's one more than he owes us. It's one more than we could ever beseech him to give us for he is not our debtor. And thus he has provided one exclusive way, but the text goes on. John 6, 40 says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. How is it that you experience the power of God in salvation? John 6 says that there is no means of entry except for those who believe on Christ. Galatians chapter three, verse 22 says this, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It is an exclusive gospel. And this is reason for boasting. It is reason for boasting because as I have already said, it's one more than we ever deserved. It is a great means of entry that it, it essentially removes all ability, all desire to bring about some good that God might be attracted to us. Instead, it is a means of interest, entry that he has provided all of grace and all those who come will indeed enter. And this is perhaps the other portion that might cause some shame that it is a wildly inclusive gospel. Notice Romans 1, 14 through 16. There's a list that he gives, Greek and barbarians. He's obligated to Greek and to barbarians. In verse 16, he says, or sorry, and it says wise and fools in verse 14 as well. But then in this particular text, he says Jews first and then the Greek. It is an inclusive gospel that it matters not whether you be Jew or Greek. It matters not whether you be, a, be the wisest of the wise or the most foolish of the foolish. Should you believe, then you will be included. And I wanna point this out to you because not only do we see that in this particular text, but we also see our Lord say this in John chapter 12, verse 32. This is right after Greeks begin to seek him. And it says this, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. There is no exemption, brothers and sisters. It is true that as Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. That is the most inclusive statement that you can find anywhere on this planet. It includes every tribe, 
tongue, and nation. And that if any member from every tribe, tongue, and nation should repent and look to Jesus by faith, they will be around that throne singing. And there's an infinite amount of applications that we could pull from even these two thoughts. First, let us remember that there is no one so good that they will get into heaven apart from Christ. There is one way. We preach an exclusive gospel and we must not be ashamed in its proclamation. Repent and believe the gospel is the call. And then we would look at those who perhaps we dislike based upon various things. Perhaps it is we do not like their socioeconomic status. Perhaps it is we we do not like their ethnicity or whatever prejudice might be there. And we say, ah, but it seems as though that if they repent and believe the gospel, then we can rest comfortably knowing that Jesus bled for them and rejoice because it is an inclusive gospel. Now, those are various reasons for us to be ashamed And I want us to notice that in Romans chapter one, verse 16, he essentially takes an ax to every single one of them. I mean, just notice this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. He doesn't speak of weakness. He doesn't speak of folly. He instead makes reference that it is the power of God. It is a demonstration of of his infinite wisdom. It is a demonstration of his infinite power. And here's what I think we often do. We often see the gospel work so normatively in our life. Or perhaps it is that you have had the great pleasure of preaching the gospel to someone and see them come to saving faith. And brothers and sisters, doesn't it look so simple? As they repent and believe the gospel, as they're converted, we look at that and we think, oh, well, that seemed less eventful than I expected it to be. And it's because God has shrouded the power of the gospel in the ordinary. As we go forth proclaiming it, we watch as dead men live, that they become new creations and there is no grand vision or anything like that. Instead, the spirit has come and given them life in a secret way. This is the premise of John chapter three. You don't see it. You don't know what's happening, but here's what we do know. We see its effects. And brothers and sisters, as we proclaim the gospel, we never never should find ourselves ashamed at its power. God has a great power to give life to dead men. And we think that's weak because it isn't someone raising from the grave. No, it's infinitely more difficult than that. It is giving life to a living dead man. One who in his will is totally contrary to the things of God. And God in his grace expresses this great and mighty power to not only give them life, but to cause in them a desire to flee from all of the wickedness that they once rejoiced in and to flee to Christ. That is the greatest of power displayed. But we often overlook it because it does seem so ordinary. But praise be to God that his might is so great that we could call it ordinary. It is his normative might. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We walked through this as we looked at verse five and it says, through whom we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Brothers and sisters, as you read through this letter, as you study the book of Romans, as we walk through it, you're gonna see that as Paul writes concerning the gospel, his primary purpose of writing is that they might believe and then, and then bear fruit in keeping with their repentance. We go forth proclaiming a gospel that demands, and hear me, brothers and sisters, because when we go forth preaching the gospel, we do not go pleading, we go commanding. Because that is the call, that the sovereign of the universe commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe. And thus we go forth with that great message. And may we never sully it by producing another means of entry, for he has not given us one. 
It is not be morally upright and good. It's repent and believe the gospel and then the fruit will come. And so we go forth proclaiming a gospel that is powerful, proclaiming a gospel that has one means of entry and proclaiming a gospel to every single soul. Notice the language to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Every single thing that we've just run through, the entirety of scripture testifies to the realities that Paul has laid out here in this one simple verse. Be not ashamed, boast, boast. Boast as you go in the cross of Christ. That is the folly to those who are perishing, but to us whose eyes have been opened by the power of God, may we rejoice in its power to save. Boast as you go to every tribe, tongue, and nation with a message that has the ability to redeem souls from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We must go on boasting. But there is something else that I would like to perhaps conclude with. There's two verses that we find in the book of Hebrews that deal with this exact same word, And I'll be honest with you, it makes sense when we think about shame for perhaps God to be ashamed of us. Because I don't know about you, but I look at my own life and I think myself wicked. I still know that there's the indwelling remnants of sin within me. And it makes perfect sense for Jesus who bought me to shrink back from me because I am not as lovely here or I'm not as lovely or it's not demonstrated here as clearly as as it has been proclaimed in heaven. But these verses are are two that comfort me and then rebuke me quite firmly. Hebrews chapter two, verse 11 says this, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Here we see our savior be unashamed of the sinners he ransomed. Now, if we could just perhaps lay this comparison out, oftentimes we, we wicked, rebellious, foolish sinners, shrink back from the God of all grace as revealed in his son. We shrink back from the one who is, as it says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him endured the cross. We shrink back from him. I can literally think of nothing more ignorant. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. But that's not the only text that we have that deals with this. Hebrews chapter 11 goes on to say this in verse 13 through 16. This is in that layout of the hall of faith, these men whose faith was strong, but ultimately we know that the only thing that's meant to be imitated by these men is their faith looking forward to Christ. And so Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16 says this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that homeland from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. This God of holiness, of glory, of might, of power, of power so great that it is able to redeem and rescue ruined sinners is not ashamed to be called the God of men who couldn't even provide the faith that was necessary to save them. He provided it. And based upon his own provision, he says, I am not ashamed to call, to call you my people. Now, what great treason it would be if the God of all grace if the God who birthed faith in us is delighted to call us his people, that the one who was made like his brother in every way, Jesus Christ, our Lord, shrinks not back 
from our own wickedness and frailty. And he would look at us and call us brother. What great treason would it be if his bride thinks him and his message is so repulsive that we are ashamed? May it never be. To go back to Paul's original purpose in doing this dual phrase for I am not ashamed of the gospel. We are to go on boasting, rejoicing and glorying in the gospel of God. There should not be any shame in us. If there were shame to be had, it would be from our master who bought us because that is a reasonable shame, but he has none. That is how complete the salvation that he has provided for us is, that he delights to call us his people, that Jesus delights to call us his brothers. May we be so delighting in the gospel that shame is never an option. 